Good morning. Welcome. Glad you're here with us this morning. I don't know about you, but I love the month of September. I think maybe it's my favorite month of the year. Um, so I'm thankful that you're here instead of being out in the great outdoors where a lot of people choose to be this time of year. But thank you for being here with us. Um, today I'd like to do things a little bit different. If you're new with us or if you've missed the last couple of weeks, you might need to know that we have started a new series through the book of Mark, the Gospel of Mark, an incredible book. And we're doing one chapter per week. So it'll be a 16-week series. We're in week three today. So I'd like to ask you if you would to turn to Mark chapter 3. We're going to look at it together in a moment. You might find a Bible there in the seat in front of you. Or you can follow along on the screen if you prefer. But um, as we do so, let me tell you this. You know, Proverbs chapter 27, verse 17 says that as iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another or one person can sharpen another. And I just love, I hope you have experienced and loved this as well, but I love sitting down with a brother in Christ or a group of friends, maybe my life group or whatever, and sitting down and talking with people about God's Word. And this week as I was preparing for Mark chapter 3, I sat down for the bulk of a day with a good friend of mine, a, a brother in Christ who has studied and read and sought to live out God's Word about as well as anybody I know. Um, he happens to be one of our elders. Most of you, or many of you anyway, know him as just Rob, Rob Gleghorn. And he's going to come up here because I said, wow, that was fun, what we did just sitting down and walking through Mark chapter 3, looking at it together. So let's do that together for the purpose of helping the church family be able to go, you know what, maybe I should do that more often. Maybe I should also, kind of like these two guys, as you're about to watch, maybe I should also sit down with a sister or a brother or a group or whatever and just spend time looking at God's Word. Mark, I mean, Rob and I do not have all the answers to everything, as you'll probably see, but as iron sharpens iron, we enjoyed walking through and looking at it together. So I want to ask if you would, again, open your Bible to Mark 3 and also make a little noise and invite Rob to come up here on stage. We're going to look at this together with you. All right. That is you sitting down. We're still, you're still taller than me. So I have no response. Sorry. <laughs> um, but you've got me beat on eyes because your font size on the paper we printed out is size 14 minus Sweet. size 26 because I'm in denial about needing reading glasses, so I just make the font bigger all the time. So my sermon has now got to like 40 pages long every week because of that. But anyway, um, my, Rob, I know that you, just like I, love to dig into God's Word. You know it's a lamp for our feet and a light for our path. What has inspired or led you to want to read the Word so much? And, you know, how, how, what would you say to people about getting into God's Word more frequently? Uh, well, and it wasn't even something I asked for. I had a mentor who came into my life uh, in Germany in the late 80s and basically forced me um, initially. And then it got to a place where I actually enjoyed it. I actually was digging in because I knew he was going to test me with questions anyway. And so, but, you know, I heard a great analogy uh, a few years ago where this lady was in California and she was watching all the surfers and she said they get up at 6 a.m. and get out there as early as they can to hit those waves not because it's a chore for them they do it because they absolutely love it and I thought you know what that's that should be our approach to God's Word um, but it doesn't start that way you know it took a few years to get into that that place where I was digging in digging in and now I'm at a place where even if I'm in numbers 
I still love it. I still find something, and God still talks to me. It's not a have-to thing. It's a get-to thing. It might feel like a have-to thing sometimes is what you're saying, but, man, it is a joy to read God's Word and spend time in it. And we just want to encourage you to do that. So as we did the other day, we just want to look at it with you. That Mark chapter 3, because we're going through the book of Mark, and today is uh, the third week of the series. So let's look at it together and, um, and talk through what, what God might want to say to us. Before we begin, Mark, uh, before we look at Mark chapter 3, Rob, would you lead us in prayer and ask the Lord to just speak to us through His Word? Absolutely. Holy Spirit, you are absolutely invited here. And uh, we want you to teach us, you to guide us, you to show us where we should go. Um, and you say that if we call out to you, you will tell us great and unsearchable things we do not know. And there's a lot we don't know, Lord, and there's, there's some things that we do. And we just pray that through it all and through your Word, which is right there in the black and white, would you help us to understand how this will absolutely affect our lives here and now. In your son's name, amen. Amen, amen. Teachability, that's what I think we all need to be of. So let's look at God's Word and let the Holy Spirit teach us some things, hopefully today, that would affect the way we live life. That's the main point. All right, Mark chapter 3, verse 1 begins, And he, Jesus, entered the synagogue, and a man was there with a withered hand. And they watched Jesus, meaning the Pharisees, watched Jesus to see whether he would heal him on the Sabbath so that they might accuse him. Those six words are, I think, the key to that sentence. So that they might accuse him. Rob, um, we talked about it. You shared it in first service. Say it again in terms of why or what that word accuse means and in what context you see that. Uh, it's interesting because it basically is the same word for judgment. And there's about ten words um, in the Old and New Testament that have to do with judgment. The bulk of them are, are good and positive things. So you come up to a crossroads in your life and you need to know whether to turn left or right. You're making a judgment. In 1 Corinthians 2, it says the person with the Spirit makes judgments about all things. Um, so you are constantly making judgments and determining whether something is black or white or good or bad. Um, you know, a pedophile is a bad thing. And, and yet God's Word tells us, and we hear people quote it all the time, judge not or you shall be judged. Judgment is bad. Don't be judgmental. How do you respond to that? Um, that's true as well, um, because those are the negative sides of judgment. But again, there are seven or eight words that are positive, and there are two or three that are negative. And one of them is accusation. I, I just came up with an acronym in between services. It's almost like ACDC, so now you'll know the bad side of uh, judgment, right? But forget the last C. Anyway, accusation, condemnation, and damnation, those three words are also used for judgment. Um, and so when you do those things, and it's kind of like the, the woman that was caught in adultery and she's brought before Jesus, he says, where are your accusers? And he says, and then he says, I don't condemn you either. And then he turns around and says, but I want you to leave your life of sin. So he turns around and judges it correctly and in the right sense, like this isn't good for you. I want you to not do that. But he does not accuse, he does not condemn, and he does not damn. In other words, like, hey, you're a loser, you, you deserve to go to hell, all those things. That's where you get into the damnation side, and th that side of judgment is bad. So, in other words, judgmentalness uh, in terms of an attitude of looking to point your bony finger at somebody and critique them in a way of, uh, you know, anything with the negative mindset, if you're Goal is there, is what we see here, so that they might accuse him. If you're judging for, with that motive or agenda, 
then you're going down a bad route, a yeah. bad road. But if you're judging for the sake of trying to help the individual or judging in, by holding God's Word up to the light and looking at it or helping an individual uh, hopefully be helped to understand their need to fall in line with God's Word, then it's okay. It's good. In fact, it's mandated by God's That's Word right. to judge. That's right. We should, we should be judging all day, every day, but the right kind of judgment, if that makes sense. All right. Interesting. So that they might accuse. That was their agenda. Um, and the Bible says, all right, verse 3 continues, And he, Jesus, said to the man with the withered hand, Come here. And he said to them, again, meaning the Pharisees, he said to them, Is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do harm, to save life or to kill? But they were silent. Now, interestingly, I think it's good to note, there, there was a good answer to this. They did not respond to it and give the answer. But the answer was that they had had... They had been given through Moses God's law, and yet they had added lots of additions and things to it. And, and in some of their man-made laws, they made it clear that while you are to not work on the Sabbath, it is okay to work on the Sabbath if somebody's life is in danger. Even if your animal, maybe your goat or donkey, is in, the, in a pit and his life is in danger, then you can work on that day. And yet here, there they're wanting to be real sticklers because, again, their motive, their agenda was so that they might accuse Jesus. Therefore, they were hoping to catch him in doing something technically wrong, which would be to heal a man, which is silly to even call that work, but that's where they were going with it. And they were silent because they didn't really have a good answer, which, again, goes back to their motive, which is, again, what God looks for in us. Our heart is the key. If the motive is to critique and to find fault in somebody else, that's one thing. But if our motive is to try to learn and understand, for one, if that had been the case here, they probably would have responded. They would have probably dialogued. But they didn't do that because their agenda was pretty well set. They were all about critiquing him, which speaks to um, the heart, which is what we want to avoid. Well, let's keep going. Verse 5 says, And he looked around at them with anger, with anger, grieved at their hard, hardness of heart. And he said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He he stretched it out, and his hand was restored. Now, before we keep going, let's talk about that. When you see the word angry, he saw them and was angry. What, what does that say to you? What, what do you see there? One of the things that I notice about Jesus is that he, when he does get angry, it's usually not about himself. So let's say you and I, we're getting mad at the traffic in Woodland Park, right? Because you can't turn left during the summer months. Um, but Jesus gets mad at the things that, offend God or offend the Holy Spirit. He's always standing up for their causes most. And in fact, later on, he says, hey, you can, you can talk smack about me all day long, but don't do it about God or the Holy Spirit. All right, that's a, that's a more serious deal. So his anger is a God-driven anger, kind of like when he was in the anger. temple courts, right, and he's overturning tables. He's like, this is my father's house. How dare you do that here? Yeah. And again, it wasn't about himself. And, and even James, it warns us that man's anger does not bring about the righteous right. life that God That's requires. Right. But having that righteous anger and to be mad at the things God is mad at, that's what we should be. Yeah, that is such a great distinction. And you know, as you look at Jesus' example right here, one, something that bounced or that, that jumped into my mind as we were talking about it on Wednesday is that Jesus was angry. He looked at them. He was saddened by their hardness of heart. But what did he do? He didn't engage any further with them. He instead said to the man, stretch out your hand, because he was focused on his agenda. They had an agenda to, again, what was it? To, that they might accuse him. But he had an agenda, which was, as Scripture teaches, 
to not be served, but to serve and give his life as a ransom for many, and to seek and save that which was lost. That's why he came to this earth, and he might, in a moment where he is angry, need to address the, the, the problem over here and talk with them, which he briefly did, but mostly he stayed the course. I love his focus of saying, you know, you're out of line, but I'm not even going to deal with you a whole lot. I'm going to stay the course, and my agenda is to, to, to not be served, but to serve and to, to bring life and to heal this man. And so that's what he did, and I love how he did that. Um, anyway, I think we, we uh, could talk about a lot of these on and on, but let's keep going. Verse 6. The Pharisees went out and immediately, that's the key word from a couple of weeks ago that we saw the book of Mark is all about, a, a sense of urgency. They went out with a sense of, emergence, uh, of urgency and they held counsel with the Herodians against him. How to destroy him. There we go. That's their point. Jesus withdrew his disciples to the sea and, and a great crowd followed from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem and Edomia and from beyond the Jordan from and from the Tyre, and from around Tyre and uh, Sidon. When the great crowd heard all that he was doing, they came to him. Kind of like we talked last week. They came to him because they saw him like a genie in the bottle. Or like Santa Claus. They wanted to sit on his lap and ask for another wish. Not that it's wrong to ask the Lord for healing or any other blessing. That's not wrong. But Jesus wants us to come to him for more than just what we can get from him. He wants us to come to him because we want to worship him and we acknowledge who he is. And this crowd was mostly gathering again, as we see frequently in the Gospels, because of all the miracles. He told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. That's how great it was. For he had healed many, so that all who had diseases pressed around him to touch him. That's why they pressed around him, because they had seen all these miracles. And whenever the unclean spirits saw him... Now, this is interesting. They fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. See that? Every time they even saw him. You are the Son of God. And he strictly ordered them not to make him known. Rob, that brought to your mind the other day some interesting thoughts. Share, share that. Uh, there's, there's a couple things. Well, one, we started having this dis discussion about demons and evil spirits. And do they have to inhabit a body or can they just float around and do their thing? And, you know, because the demons were like, hey, don't cast us out, cast us into the pigs, like they had to go somewhere, right? And so it, we were having this dialogue back and forth that was pretty cool. We're like, well, so if these demons were inside of bodies of these people and when they saw him and they fell down, did the bodies that they inhabited fall down as well? And what did that look like? And it, and it probably did. And then there's the, uh, the story of Jesus where he's in the Garden of Gethsemane and it says, we're looking for Jesus of Nazareth. And he says, I am he. And all these soldiers fall to the ground. Um, and then I think, sarcastically, Jesus says, uh, who, who are you looking for again? And they're like, uh, Jesus? You know, kind of that mentality. And he goes, oh, yeah, I'm the guy you're looking for. Because just like Joel yeah. was doing right there at the end of that song, there is power in the name Absolutely. of Jesus. The power in the name of Jesus is incredible. And, yeah. and so talk about, I did it first service. Tell us again the thought you had about the... Oh, so I, for some of you who are old enough, somebody said earlier, Foghorn Leghorn. I'm like, that's only because you're 50 years old. You know what that cartoon is. Anyway, um, the, the old Bugs Bunny cartoons that you would see every now and then, an angel on one shoulder and a demon or something on the other. And it was almost like this 50-50 relationship that could go either way at either second. But the reality is that he who is in us is much, much, much greater than he who is in the world. Amen. That's it's not right. even close second. And uh, 
Satan is a created being. And if you remember nothing else, remember this. God could crush Satan like a grape in one instant. He created him in an instant. He could take him out in an instant. He's choosing to leave him here for some reason. That I don't have the answer to. But I'm just saying, it's not a 50-50. First John 4-4. Four, four, greater is he who's in us than he who's in the world. And there is comfort and power in knowing that, okay, we may be no match for Satan on our own. So don't go looking for that battle on your own. But if you're walking with the Lord, if, if you have Jesus beside you, you have nothing to fear. And there's great comfort in knowing that in all the stuff that we face in our world. I just love that. And I, I loved your angle of understanding because a lot of people are there. They kind of think they're equal battle or, you know, equal forces battling it out. But that's not true. There is no comparison. That's awesome. Verse 13 continues, and he went up to the mountain, on the mountain, and called to him those whom he desired. Now, think about that. He called to him those whom he desired, and they came to him. You just mentioned you don't always know. You don't always understand everything in Scripture. Here is an example of that again. We talked about this and did not come up with a perfect answer by any means. But does that verse not say, does it not seem to look, if you look at it, like Jesus called some that he desired, like he, in other words, desires to be in relationship more with some than with others? Like, does he not have favorites? Is that not what that kind of sounds like? The one thing we landed on that is so critical, I'll say this and then I want you to talk about it a little bit, is that, um, uh, um, that what was the one thing? What was that? Oh yeah, that you can't have a one-verse theology. That you cannot, whether it be here or any other individual verse in Scripture, build your theology based on a verse. Um, you have to look at all of God's Word in context. Otherwise, that's how cults get started. They take a verse, it's scriptural, but they don't look at all the other things along that same line of thinking that uh, might add more color commentary or context, and so then they get out of line. That, that's kind of where you were going with that. But bottom line, what do you think? Does God have favorites? Does He desire to be in relationship with some more than others? What do you think? Yes, yes, and yes. So... Um he says that he raised Pharaoh up for the very purpose so that he could smack him around and show him his power. That's why Pharaoh was alive and born. Is that an exact uh, quote? Yes. That's come, okay, maybe not. It's, it's in the back. It comes near maps. <laughs> um, so, so you have that, and then you have like a Second Peter 3, 9. It says, I don't want anybody to perish. I want all to come to repentance. That's right. Then Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 5 goes and says, I, I chose you before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless. Now, I have a hard time wrapping my arms around that because it says this, and then it says this, yeah. and then this, and then this, and it's right back and forth. If you lean on just the one side that says he has favorites and he chose me, you are correct. If you say that it's all free choice and that the Lord loves anybody, will take anybody at the second that they want to give their lives to the Lord, you are correct. So does the Bible contradict itself? No, I'm contradicted. So um, well, you, You're contradicting what? Yeah, that's right. I'm contradicted. Oh, I am the okay. one who yeah. doesn't understand. Paul himself said, I know now in part, then I'll know fully. 1 Corinthians 13. Yes. Uh, there, there are, we look in a mirror, now we kind of see this, this mild image. We kind of can make something out, but we don't get it. Later on, we're going to see clearly. And so I think the scriptures are clear about that, that you're not going to get it fully. I don't get eternity. I can look at eternity forward and go, okay, we're going to live forever, kind of. But when you think of eternity past, 
Jesus, God, the Holy Spirit were always there. I can't even begin to fathom that or wrap my arms around that. And you know what? That's okay because it doesn't affect my faith at all. It's like, like the, the young friend uh, or the friend of ours who has a young daughter, actually, who asked him, and he texted me this during the week. He said, so my daughter wants to know where did God come from? And I said, well, he never had a beginning, but have fun explaining that to her. There you go, you know, because how, how, how can we even as grown-ups understand it, let alone a six-year-old? And the point would be, I think, with a lot of this, that it's okay to recognize that there are things we don't understand, at least not fully. Paul the Apostle said the same thing. I, I referenced as well, or we were talking on Wednesday about this, that it was in Second uh, Peter 3, verse 16. I came to this in my devotional time that I start every day with, uh, just, I don't know, last week or the week before, about how Peter said... Uh, you can look it up, Second Peter 3.16, where he talks about how certain parts of Scripture are hard to understand. Certain parts of what Paul said are hard to understand, Peter acknowledged. And if that's true for even Peter, the, the, the apostle, surely there are going to be a lot of things that are hard for us to understand. And that might seem like, well, that's a bummer. I want to understand it just, you know, like immediately. That's okay, because I love how you um, have often said and drawn people, whether it be in a setting like this or on Thursday morning with our men's group, which, I, by the way, all you men ought to come every Thursday morning, 7 a.m. Uh, here at the church. But talk a little bit about how you look at not getting worried about the mysteries of God. That's a phrase we see in Scripture a lot. Not getting worried about those things or off track focused on those and sticking with the black and white. Talk about what you mean by that. Well, I, I think you just hit it. It's sticking with the black and white. I mean, if, it, if we took the things that we understand and try to apply those, um, you're going to spend the rest of your life just looking at that, let alone the, the things that we don't understand, because there, there's a lot that we don't, but there's way more that we do. I mean, our Bibles are that thick. Um, his is thicker because of his eyesight, yes. but our Bibles are that thick, and if, <laughs> if you're in there, it's like people are always saying, I don't know what I want to do with my life. I'm like, he gave you 99% of it right there. He tells you, I want you to be kind. I want you to act justly. I want you to walk in mercy. I want you to do these things. And so it has been laid out. Well, the Great Commission, which is, what has, it, which is what's behind these things that are on the, on the wall here beside us. We want to be all about the Great Commission found in Matthew 28 to, to make sure that we go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. And, and Jesus made it so clear, you just do the, when he was asked, what's the most important commandment? I say this all the time because it's so important, but we tend to overlook it. He said, you want to know the most important thing? You really want to know what it is? It's not the hard to understand stuff. It's this, love the Lord your God with all you've got, your heart, soul, mind, and strength. You love him with all you've got. And secondly, love your neighbor as yourself. And he said in Matthew 22, 37, he said, all the law and the prophets, meaning all this other stuff, including the stuff that's hard to understand, all of this hangs on these two commandments. So in other words, you get these two things right, and most of the rest of that stuff's going to take care of itself. And we don't need to get off track, focused on, or worried about the things that are like a little confusing. It's fun to sit and dialogue about it, especially with people that have maybe studied Scripture a lot. But don't dwell too long on that. You know, like, hey, 
What's the tribulation going to look like? When's Jesus coming back? And how long is that going to last? And what about the mark of the beast or the Antichrist? Or There are so many topics like that. I'm like, you know, I don't know for sure, but here's, here's maybe what I think. But mostly, you know what we need to do? We need to love our neighbor. We need to tell our neighbor about Jesus. We need to apologize if we have wronged somebody. Maybe it's your wife or your child or whatever. Those kind of dwell on the black and white stuff. I love how you always say that, and I think that's where we need to go. Now, right, let's keep going. Verse 14. And Jesus appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him and might be, and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. And then there's the list there. We're not even going to take time to look through that, but there are twelve that he listed there, including, verse 19 says, Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. And I love, every time I see that, it reminds me, Jesus knew from the beginning that Judas was going to betray him, and yet Jesus loved him. And he walked with him. He spent time with him. He gave him the same chance that he gave everybody else. Whereas a lot of us probably would have kicked a guy to the curb if we knew, hey, I know what's coming around the corner from you, so I'm not going to mess with you. Jesus didn't have that attitude. I am so thankful that God has that kind of loving attitude toward all of us. But verse 20, then he says, then, he, then Jesus went home, and the crowd gathered again so that they could not even eat. And when his family heard it, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, he is out of his mind. Now, his family loved him, but they also felt like they needed to rebuke him here. They thought he was out of his mind, in fact, Mark records. So think, think about this. I mean, their motives were positive, but their bottom line was they did not understand his real calling. They didn't understand his real purpose. You shared some interesting thoughts about that in first service. Do it again. What did you say? I don't remember what I said, but uh, I'll share some thoughts anyway. Right. So, you know, and, and I don't know what your guys' families are like. Uh, a lot of times your family is the one that gives you the most grief. They're the ones that think you're kind of whacked out and weird. Uh, sometimes it's your immediate family, not mine. Um, sometimes it's your extended family. And so, it, you know, to this day, I have extended family that thinks I have turned my back on the Lord, which is funny to me because I'm more locked and loaded now than ever. But Jesus said, a prophet's only without honor in his own hometown and among his own family members and relatives, right? So I don't go by what my family thinks. Now, if 20 of you came up to me and said the same thing, I'm like, all right, they're probably on to something. Uh, but family members, sometimes you don't know. And Jesus was not disrespectful. He wasn't rude. If we were to skip down here to verse 31 um, through 35, you read that his mother and brothers came standing out, outside. They sent... They, yeah, they sent to him and called him, and a crowd was sitting around him, and, and they said to him, Your mother and your brothers are outside seeking you. And he answered them, Who are my mother and my brothers? And looking about at those who sat around him, he said, Here are my mother and my brothers. For whoever does the will of God, he is my brother and sister and mother. Was Jesus being disrespectful or, or lacking honor toward his family? No, I don't think so at all. I think Jesus was basically saying, If you follow the Lord's will like I do, we're family. And let's face it, you, you probably have better family members in here than your blood family. So what Jesus is saying at the end of the day is it is not about blood. True family, true brothers and sisters and mothers and fathers are those who follow and do what God has asked them to do. And that's what we should be passing on generation to generation, blood or not. And he loved his family. He was not being disrespectful. I mean, when he died on the cross, he turned to John and said... Yep this is your mother, and mother, here's your son. And, and he was trying to hand off the responsibilities and basically say, John, please take care of my mom. 
you know, as I'm about to die. And, um, and, and his brother James, who was not a believer, became one. He later became the leader of the Jerusalem church and wrote the book of James that so many of us love. So Jesus was not ignoring or being rude to his family. He was being focused, again, with his purpose, his mission. And I love that. Um, well, let's continue here briefly. You know what? Verse 22, we'll just kind of glance at this. The scribes who came down from Jerusalem were saying, He is possessed by Beelzebul. And by the prince of demons, he cast out demons. And he called them to him and said to them in parables, How can Satan cast out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. And if a house is divided against itself, that house will not be able to stand. And, and if Satan has risen a, up against himself and is divided, he cannot stand, but is coming to an end. But no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds the strong man. Then indeed he may plunder his house. All right, there's another passage here at the end of the chapter we want to look at together for a couple of minutes. So we've got about 60 seconds, 30 seconds to nail this down. So tell us what that means in 30 seconds. All right, in 30 seconds. So I think, I mean, he's answering their question, obviously, and saying, hey, I can't, be, I can't have Satan inside uh, to be doing God's work. Um, but I think the more important piece of that passage is division. You can't have a good marriage if you're on two separate planets. You can't have a good church that stays unified if you have different factions going in different directions for different reasons. And so we want to be unified with the things that matter for sure. Um, and coming to a consensus of that, that, and that is important. Um, everything else can be a minor issue, and we can be okay and let that other stuff slide. But let's focus on what's important. And he was debunking their their point that, you know, that he was working with Satan or somehow. That doesn't even make sense. It's not right. even logical, and that's what he was pointing out to them. A house divided cannot stand. We need to focus on essentials, not non-essentials. All right. Um, let's move on. Verse 28 and 29 and following there are really interesting. Um, we get into what is called the unpardonable sin, and a lot of people get confused about it. And again, as a disclaimer, Rob and I don't have all the answers to all of this, but let's look at this scripture together. We'll, most of the time we focus on verse 29 about the blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, the unpardonable sin as it is called, and we focus there. But I think verse 28 is amazing. Look at this. Jesus says, truly I say to you, all sin. Somebody say the word all. That's a big deal. All sins will be forgiven, the children of man, and whatever blasphemies they utter. All will be forgiven. But, he says, whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. For they, are, they were saying, the Pharisees were saying, he has an unclean spirit. So, with this thought being that there is a sin that cannot be forgiven, a.k.a. the unpardonable sin. Rob, how would you briefly, and we could talk a long time about it, not that we have all the answers, but how would you briefly try to explain to people what, what he's talking about here? Um, and that one's a tough one. Um, you know, there's a, a story in the Old Testament where a person commits blasphemy against God and they take him outside the city gates and stone him. Um, and so there's that kind of blasphemy, and I think it has several different connotations. This one here sounds like it's more along the lines if you're claiming, again, Jesus standing up for God the Father or the Holy Spirit, if you claim that the Holy Spirit is doing evil work or that God did this, he's bent on evil, and you start going down that road, uh, and this wasn't even something that we talked about last week, but I think maybe this 
this is my thought now, this isn't a uh, Hebrew Greek study. I think it has something to do more with the person who stays in that state of mind. Like it's not a one-time deal, maybe. Somebody who continually just claims that God did that to me, that, that, and that, and that if you stay there, you are having this blasphemous spirit, if you will, that is not going to be forgiven. I agree. I don't think it's so much a, a single act like, oh, I said the, the, the right. terrible exact words, therefore I'm never able to be forgiven. It's not that as much as it is more, so much more a, ad, an attitude, a mm -hmm. way of being. I think, as we talked about this, and again, this is our take on it. We are not experts in this way, but I'll tell you this. I think if you worry about, if you're concerned that maybe you have committed the unpardonable sin, you're probably okay. It's the people that don't worry about it because they have seared their conscience, because they have gone down the road you're talking about, that they are unforgivable, not because they have committed a particular sin that God cannot forgive, they are unforgivable because they have got to a place where they will never, ever, ever ask for forgiveness because they have allowed their heart to become so hard and calloused or seared that they no longer are in a place where they were open to that. And that's why it's unforgivable, which is a whole different deal than doing one thing. You say a certain word and boom, God's done with you. I don't have time to go into it, but Rob asked me to share. and the, I don't have time, but the short version is this. I, when I was um, 22 years old and my mother passed away, which I've talked about that before uh, for those who've been here a long time, uh, I handled that poorly. And as a Bible college graduate getting ready to go into ministry, I got angry at God. And I actually for a period of time thought I probably committed the unpardonable sin because I was so angry at God and and disillusioned and depressed and, and, and a mixture of a lot of different emotions, confused, all these things. I, at one point one day, I cursed at God. I mean, I used all the words you can think of, which should not come out of anybody's mouth, but especially not somebody getting ready to go into ministry. And, and I, was, I was totally at that point of going, I don't, I don't disbelieve in you, but I don't like you. I don't trust you. I don't think you have my best interests at heart. I think you're full of this and that, and I said terrible things. And for a period of time, I'm like, oh my word, what have I done? I've probably committed the unpardonable sin. And I worried about that for a long time, and it was a mentor of mine who said, Scott, I don't, that wasn't right, that's true, that was terrible, and you need to repent of that, but I don't think you committed the unpardonable sin because you're still pliable, you're still asking God to forgive you, you recognize that was wrong, Somebody who's committed the unpardonable sin, who has blasphemed against the Holy Spirit, let's see, against the Holy Spirit never has forgiveness, but is guilty of an eternal sin. Somebody who's gone down that road has turned their back on the Lord and will never feel guilty, let alone ask for forgiveness. And you're not in that boat. And so over time, I have many times said, Lord, I am sorry. I regret that time in the past, and I know He's forgiven me of that, and I'm walking closely with Him now. So my point in saying that is to encourage you not to worry about maybe have I committed the unpardonable sin if you've made a mistake, because we've all made lots of mistakes. Some feel bigger than others, but basically they're all things that separate us between, come between us and the Lord, and we need to repent of them. And we want to close today by asking the band to come up, and as they do, we're going to sing a song about restoration. And it kind of flows so well out of this verse 28. When Jesus said, truly I say to you, all sins, 
That means all of our sins will be forgiven the children of man and whatever blasphemies they utter. All these things, other than this, this quenching of the Spirit, this unpardonable sin that we tried to just now explain. Now, obviously, Jesus is referencing when there is confession and repentance. And if we walk before Him, and we just want to give you an opportunity this morning to repent. We had a couple of people come forward at the end of first service as we sang this beautiful song about restoration. Maybe you feel a need for restoration, for God to initially come into your life and forgive your sins. You've never asked Him to do that before. Maybe you've been there, but you've slidden backwards. You've struggled in this or that way, and you need to come today and say, God, I need your forgiveness, and I, I need your help to walk closer with you and to deal with this issue or that issue, whatever it may be. If so, would you please, as we stand and sing this song, would you listen to the Holy Spirit? And if He speaks to you and encourages you to move your feet and come forward and pray, Rob and I will both be up here, Rob's wife, Heidi, or I don't know, any, anybody that maybe has a brother or sister you see beside you. If you want to pray with somebody, you can do so up here. You can do so where you sit too, but would you stand with us right now and let's sing this song about restoration. Let's worship the Lord. And if you feel God calling you, will you come as we sing?